0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: This is the Yale Environmental Dialogue, a podcast that is exploring
0: solutions to a more sustainable future. Welcome to the Yale Environmental Dialogue podcast. I'm Sue Beniaz. I'm a senior fellow at the Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and I used to be the lead climate lawyer for the U.S. State Department. I'm pleased today to be joined by Todd Stern, who is currently a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution and former Special Envoy for Climate Change at the State Department. We're going to discuss what's needed to achieve an effective climate policy for the world, more specifically to promote the goals of the Paris Agreement. In the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future, I make the case that the Paris Agreement can't do it alone. I suggest the creation of a SWAT team to help figure out how to better align other international agreements and institutions with the Paris goals. It's a procedural idea, but it's about substance. My premise is that the Paris Agreement is very different from other international environmental agreements, and therefore requires much more support. So why is it different? Most environmental agreements are self-contained. The parties go home, and they do what's written in the agreement, and maybe a little funding is thrown in from outside the agreement, And voila, they achieve the environmental objective of the agreement. But the Paris Agreement is very different. First, let's look at what the Paris Agreement does. It has a goal of limiting the global temperature to well below 2 degrees while pursuing efforts to reach 1.5. Each party designs its own emissions commitment. The parties update their commitments regularly and, with any luck, increase their ambition over time. And the Paris Agreement has other goals as well, to increase resilience and adapt to climate change and to promote financial flows that are consistent with the Paris Agreement. So why does it need help? I'll give you seven reasons. One, the goals of the Paris Agreement are incredibly ambitious. They implement, or implicate entire economies of countries, so they're not like uh, other international environmental agreements. The second reason is the commitments are not preset like most agreements. Each country determines its own commitment. Therefore, you're gonna need all kinds of cajoling of countries to get them to increase their ambition, just like what happened at Climate Week at the UN with the Secretary General Summit. The third reason is that many parties are gonna need financial assistance to carry out their commitments. And more broadly, financial institutions in the world, including the World Bank, regional development banks, and the private sector are going to need to better align their funding with the goals of Paris. The fourth reason is that other agreements may actually impede the implementation of the Paris Agreement. If Paris works the way it's supposed to, and countries increase their ambition over time, they may end up taking measures that get challenged under other agreements, such as the World Trade Organization or various investment agreements. So those agreements need to be potentially better aligned with the climate goals. The fifth reason is that in some cases, other international regimes are affirmatively designated by the Paris regime to take on specific issues. And I'm thinking uh, in particular of international maritime emissions and international aviation emissions. The sixth reason is that in some cases, other international fora actually make more sense. I mean, you're not going to use the Paris Agreement to negotiate an agreement on fossil fuel subsidy reform or on lowering tariffs for environmental goods. Those just require particular expertise and probably a subset of the parties. And the last, the seventh reason, is that some issues are just so cross-cutting that they cry out for treatment across multiple venues. And I'm thinking there of oceans issues, carbon removals, which if you do at scale could have implications for forests and biodiversity, and of course sea level rise and migration. So far, these other international agreements and institutions have a mixed record. Some have done very well. The Montreal Protocol, for example, adopted an amendment um, on hydrofluorocarbons, the so-called Kigali Amendment, directly addressing uh, greenhouse gases. The ICAO institution took a decision to reduce emissions from aviation, uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, but many have not risen to the, to the challenge. So my idea is that we really need to create a SWAT team to develop an inventory of what the various international agreements and institutions need to do, what they've done so far, and what still needs to be done, so that when the world is ready to attack this problem as seriously as possible, uh, we're ready to go. So Todd, over to you. What do you what's your reaction to that idea?
1: Uh, thanks, Sue. Uh, well, I, I quite agree with your approach generally. Um, I think that uh, that Paris is uh, part of the equation, but uh, can't be all of the equation. I, I, we have seen in the last year really a striking increase. I think in the degree to which uh, uh, the message uh, is on the table and the message is being heard by more and more people that uh, that climate change is uh, is happening at a level of urgency. Uh, even greater than people have have understood before. That has been evident in uh, in the uh, extreme weather events that have happened all over the world, as well as a whole series of reports from the UN's uh, climate body, the UNFCCC, uh, sorry, the IPCC, uh, in connection with uh, the, the so-called 1.5 report, reports on food, reports on, uh, on oceans uh, and the like. So uh, I think that that the need to go to uh, expand beyond Paris uh, in the way that you have uh, suggested uh, makes a lot of sense. I would, I would uh, add even uh, another place. Uh, where uh, I think there needs to be alignment with the Paris goals, uh, and that's uh, broadly in the world of finance. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit, but but uh, whether it involves the IMF or the World Bank uh, or any kind of lending around the world needs to stop, in effect, being brown lending and needs to become green lending. Rachel Kite, who is formerly the head of Sustainable Energy for All, uh, now at the Fletcher School, uh, spoke at the – During the UN General Assembly meetings in the fall, and talked about the need to uh, to uh, create a new Bretton Woods uh, agreement uh, to uh, to do exactly that work of aligning. Uh, We have to we have to align uh, international action and international finance uh, with uh, Paris uh, with the Paris goals uh, is is part of that broader alignment that you're talking about. So yes, broadly I agree.
0: You were the special envoy uh, from 2009 to 2017. Now, if a new president were to come in uh, who cares a lot about this climate issue, what would be your advice on how he or she should re-engage? That could include saying something about the Paris Agreement or the major economies process, which you were very instrumental in uh, in leading during your tenure, or any other ideas that you might have.
1: Well, so... Uh, I'll focus mostly on the, uh, on the international. Obviously, there is a tremendous amount of work that, uh, that needs to get, uh, to get put into place on the uh, domestic side as well. Uh, we've been moving uh, at the federal level in exactly the wrong direction over the last number of years under President Trump and so there will be a lot to uh, get going on that level. But let me focus on the, uh, on the, on the international side. Uh, for starters, uh, a president is going to want to rejoin Paris. A president is going to want to uh, to uh, put together as quickly uh, as uh, as is, uh, is 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 as possible and as uh, vigorously as possible a new U.S. target, the so-called NDC, uh, that would cover the period to twenty thirty, which. Uh, by rights we owe in 2020, we're not going to see it in 2020 given the current administration, but a new president will be looking to do that. Uh, I think that there will be uh, a a crying need for the US to get back f- uh, heavily in the game diplomatically. Uh, that's going to include reestablishing our climate relationship with China, which was central to everything that happened uh, during the Obama years. Uh, not only China. I think it will be important for a new president to engage with the other major uh, developing countries, such as India, uh, Brazil, South Africa, with uh, with the European Union, which has always been a leader on climate change. Uh, and and there's there are is a whole uh, substantial group of of important progressive countries around the world. Uh, some of them in Latin America, the island states, uh, states in Africa, and elsewhere. Uh, that were that, that played a big role in Paris under the banner of the so-called high ambition coalition. So I think re in, re uh, invigorating that diplomacy uh, is going to be very important. I think that the major economies forum, uh, which uh, we started uh, uh, under uh, President uh, Clinton, uh, was a very important diplomatic entity when uh, when uh, we were there in the Clinton administration. I think uh, that I would like to see a new president. Reinvigorate uh, the major economies forum, uh, but at a leader level, let's say every two years or so, uh, because again, the nature of the climate threat that we're facing, even in just the past year, has been has been understood to be uh, so much more urgent than was uh, than was uh, appreciated. Uh, it was, and uh, so I think that. Uh, leaders coming together to uh, to be able to share a sense of where we are, where we need to be, how how the major countries can collaborate uh, would be a good and important thing.
0: Do you think the U.S. will be able to sort of spring back to where it was before in terms of its relationships with all of these countries, including China? Um, or do you think we, we will have suffered to a certain extent by virtue of uh, walking away from the Paris Agreement?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really, really important question. I, I think of it in two ways. I think, on the one hand, uh, there is largely a hunger among other countries to see the U.S. return to uh, the kind of U.S. that they uh, that they expected, um, uh, and so I think that it's some. In one sense, the U.S. will be welcomed back and people will want to see the US fully engaged, will want to be past the uh, nightmare of, of of US disengagement under President Trump. Having said that, I think one of the real uh, longer range uh, forms of damage that has, uh, that has occurred now that can't be easily wiped away is that a lesson that other countries have inevitably learned is even if we put a good president in place in, in 2021 or 2020 uh, after the 2020 election, uh, that the US has the capability of swinging back in the other direction. So what assurance does do, – do any what assurances do, do any of these other countries have that we are going to uh, be on the right course? Part of the answer to that – and this isn't easy either. None of this stuff is easy, but part of the answer to that is that uh, – I think it is enormously important that at the domestic level we move beyond the uh, the uh, the, the, um, the pattern of swinging back and forth between taking executive-based action and then undoing the executive. The Democrat takes executive action, a Republican undoes the executive action, uh, and. What we need to do is is get enough consensus to find ways to to move forward legislatively so that so that we have at least some level of bipartisanship. It's not going to be perfect, but we need to move in that direction. And I think if other countries saw that, that would give them some greater um, level of comfort. Um, let me ask you a question, Sue. Um, uh, i I'm curious about whether so – I just referenced the notion of the importance of uh, the U.S. Uh, doing a new NDC. But are there issues um, that are uh, implicated with respect to the U.S. rejoining Paris, the U.S. doing a new NDC or uh, any of those kinds of things?
0: Um, yeah, that's it's an interesting question and I guess my view, I think um – aligns pretty closely with what you were just talking about in in the following sense. Uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement is easy. Um, you know, It's structured as an agreement that does not need to go to the Senate. So a new president could, you know, in theory, rejoin on day one, and according to the terms of the Paris Agreement, the U.S. would be a party 30 days later. So that part is actually pretty easy. And um, if you think about it, the gap during which the United States would be a non-party would be just a couple months if that, you know, came to pass. But I think that structuring the Nationally Determined Contribution or NDC is a lot more challenging, pretty much for the reasons, or in part, for the reasons that you identify. When you join Paris, a party to Paris needs to have an NDC in place. Um, But A new administration, while it could rejoin Paris, you know, per se on day one, presumably is going to need some time to figure out what is the commitment that they're taking on under the agreement. Um, Presumably, they're going to want to engage in some kind of domestic outreach for exactly the reasons that you're talking about as you you want to create the thing that the U.S signs up to internationally in a way that it has more buy-in so that maybe we reduce the chances that every four or eight years we're sort of flip-flopping on international climate policy. You might also want to use the opportunity to engage internationally before you decide what the U.S. target is going to be, including maybe through the major economies process that you mentioned. You might also want to see if you can get some kind of legislation passed, again, to have a more sustainable approach to the Paris agreement. You know, and I suspect that like some of the interests of a new administration are going to need to be balanced, because in a way, some of them cut in different directions. So I think one of the objectives of a new administration might be what I would call something like immediacy, like they'll want to come in and basically show, you know, we're different from the previous administration, we want to get going immediately. And, you know, maybe symbolically even join the Paris agreement on day one. At the same time, they want to have credibility in terms of the thing they're signing up to, because the U.S. is going to have a credibility deficit at that point. So they're going to want to come in with some kind of target that they can reassure other countries, you know, that they can actually meet. And that may take some time to to develop. So the credibility and immediacy may be sort of somewhat at odds. At the same time, they're going to want to show some kind of climate leadership, which might mean taking on a more stringent target than the U.S. is in a position to actually implement. So in that sense, leadership and credibility could be somewhat at odds. You know, in other words, if it's the target is too stringent, you lose credibility. And if it's too unstringent, you lose leadership. So I think it'll be interesting to see how a new administration kind of figures out how to balance all of these objectives. I mean, like off the top of my head, I think there are kind of two basic options. You know, they could join... And, uh, sorry, they could come into power and wait and basically say, you know, just like President Trump said, I intend to withdraw from Paris, they could basically do the mirror image of that and say, we intend to rejoin the Paris Agreement once we've figured out our NDC. The other option, if they're intent on joining right away, they could maybe put in some kind of um, target that's sort of provisional or a placeholder. We did something like that, as you remember, when we joined the Copenhagen Accord. We had sort of half of the Waxman-Markey bill passed at the time, and we didn't know that it wouldn't pass. And we put in something that said, you know, in the range of 17 percent, you know, with the final target to be submitted to the secretariat, like in light of enacted legislation. So you could do something like that that would be start with a like what something you know the United States could implement but basically say you would kind of update that target once you have uh, conducted domestic consultations international consultations and perhaps gotten legislation um, so that might be one way to balance those those different factors
1: could I ask you one uh, just one short follow-up is it possible for the United States to join on day one and explain that it doesn't doesn't have a target yet because you know the president just got there it's going to take a little bit of time but that you but rather than saying we intend to join which i expect would be quite distressing to a lot of uh, americans could you could you actually join but with a kind of proviso that you know we we know there's supposed to be an ndc we weren't here you know, in, 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 at, the, at the COP in twenty twenty to do that. We're working on it full speed ahead and that'll be coming soon. Is that is that a possible solution?
0: I mean technically as a legal matter, you're supposed to have an N D C in place. Mm-hmm. I think um, you know, if you wanted to do what you're talking about, you'd probably want to make that period pretty short that you were going that you were N D C less. Um you know, the U.S. would have to also decide, did they want to set the precedent for countries being parties to Paris without NDCs? And maybe they don't. You know, another possibility is we have an NDC right now for 2025. Um, once we pull out of Paris, that will sort of fall off the table. One could imagine if you needed something to put in there just to sort of as a technical matter, you could sort of reinstate the 2025 one and note that you are developing your... Twenty thirty target uh, on the basis of you know consultations yeah, and legislation and sort of check off the the legal box, um, and it would be a way to rejoin you know right away. Well, I have you know final question for you, which is just any any other thoughts on what the world or the U.S. in particular should be doing uh, to promote Paris?
1: Well, I, let me let me let me make a, a, a couple of generalized uh, gen, sort of general comments. First is I think that. Um, that people who follow climate international climate uh, activities should understand that, in essence, the architectural, if you if you will, period of figuring out how to structure an agreement, which in one way or another went all the way from the 1990s through Paris and even through the Poland uh, meeting in December, is pretty much over. There's a little bit left to do, but it's pretty much over, and now we're it, it, uh, focused on the substantive issue of how we can decarbonize. That's speed and scale which is the issue. We are in a race against time and what we know is that directional improvement isn't good enough. We need really to move very quickly. Um, So that's one general comment I I would make. The other other that I I would say is that Paris can be quite important in this process but nobody should think that Paris is supposed to do it all and people shouldn't look. And I think some people do. It's natural, but I don't think people should look and say, "Well, gee, that we're behind. We're on only on a path for three degrees after after the the, the Paris meeting." And so, uh, and and the new NDCS that have put that are going to be put forward in 2020, maybe some people will be disappointed, and will say, "Well, Paris is failing." That's the wrong way to look at it. Paris is not failing. Paris, the, the architecture of Paris is sound. But what the architecture of Paris absolutely depends upon is political will from countries. We have the, the the innovative capacity to do what we need to do. We know what to do from the point of view of policy, and we can afford it. Those three elements, check, check, check. We do not have adequate political will, and we don't see adequate political will being demonstrated in most places around the world. And that's got to that's got to change. I think there's a kind of a dialectic between. Paris as a as a as an institution and if it's done right um, a place that can that can help to bolster that will but in turn that national commitment has to come forward and make Paris stronger so they've got to interact they've got to affect each other in a kind of mutually reinforcing way but uh, I think that's what that's the challenge ahead of us
0: Oh, I agree with you. I sometimes hear Paris criticize, which I think you can make criticism of Paris, but I don't think the following are legitimate <laughs> criticisms. So like you, I often hear people say, well, the world is not on track to hit well below 2 degrees or 1.5 based on the initial NDCs, therefore Paris is bad. I say, well, if the world had been on track in 2015 to meet 1.5 or well below 2. We wouldn't have needed the structure of the Paris Agreement. It was completely understood in 2015 that the initial set of contributions was not going to add up, and that's why we have this uh, mechanism for global reviews every five years and updating of NDCs, et cetera, et cetera. That was sort of built into the design of the agreement. I also hear, um, well, the targets aren't legally binding and they're not sort of enforceable like the way they would be in, in domestic law therefore paris is is flawed but i you know urge people to to um i think realize that if the paris agreement were had legally binding targets with stringent consequences for non-compliance you know you couldn't just count on the same participation or level of contributions then countries were felt freer to be more ambitious because they were not worried about um you know stringent consequences hitting them over the head if they didn't meet their uh, their targets, and we also had countries join that would not have been able to join had the targets been legally binding. So I don't think you just come in later and superimpose certain design features that you, you know, ideally would prefer. Thank you so much, Todd, for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The Yale Environmental Dialogue is produced
1: by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Music is by Ben Cosgrove.